For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Are you a poet but you don't know it? Who gets to be one? What is poetry for? If it's only for literary types, it's destined to lie dusty in its ivory tower, isn't it? But poetry can be really simple, actually. It's just the expression of feelings and ideas, but given intensity by the use of rhythm and a distinctive style. For a while there, though, it seemed like no one much was reading it and few people were writing it and even fewer buying it. Of course, it never went away, but I do think it's fair to say that poetry fell out of fashion and music took over. Once upon a time, poets were treated like rock stars, but now it's the other way around. As my hero Bob Dylan notes in the new Scorsese doco Rolling Thunder review, have you seen it, by the way? Oh, my God, so great. You can find it on Netflix. You have to watch it. But there's a bit in there where he talks about how poets used to weevil their way into the public imagination. And he talks about Allen Ginsberg, who's on tour with him, and that line, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Loads of people remember that. Another example that Bob gives, Walt Whitman, who said... I am large, I contain multitudes. And in this interview, Bob says, we still remember those lines today. Today's poets, though, don't reach into public consciousness that way. Nowadays, the lines that people remember are lyrics from songs. Now, Bob should know, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But thanks to social media and our supposedly short attention spans, but perhaps it's just that we're time poor, a new generation of poets is exciting pop culture. Think about the rise of Cleo Wade. If you're listening, Cleo, I'd love you to come on this podcast. Or Beyonce, working with Warsan Shire on Lemonade. Think about how a new generation has come to Maya Angelou's iconic poem, Still I Rise. The new interest in poetry is inspired by politics and diversity and activism. For example, Danes Smith writing about the police shooting of Mike Brown. Or Patience Carter writing a poem about surviving the Orlando shooting. Or there's a new book called Here, Poems for the Planet, which is all about climate change. Or I just found this amazing person, Rosie La Jaguara, who's a fashion poet who prints her verses on the back of vintage shirts. This is not the I wandered lonely as a cloud kind of genre. It's all about modern issues and speaking to the kids in the way that they can relate to. Now, I first encountered this week's guest reciting a poem on stage at last year's Green Carpet Awards during Milan Fashion Week. It was all about consumerism. Wilson Oriema is a 25-year-old British poet, filmmaker and activist who describes himself as a semi-retired model at 25. Hello. He was scouted on his lunch break when he was working an office job in London and he walked his first show at Margiela in Paris. He went on to appear in a Calvin Klein undies ad. 
He's been called Muse to Grace Wales Bonner. But it was his first book of poetry, Wait, that got people writing about him. It sprang from an art show that he held in a London gallery after he interned for his photographer friend Harley Weir. And now, as well as writing, he's making short films about the fashion industry's impacts on the environment. Wilson and I were recently at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit and he was talking all about consumerism. He reckons that poetry is just one of the ways he can communicate his ideas to his audience. And that when he began, it didn't worry him one bit that he hadn't read loads of poetry. He just gave it a go and it worked. This interview is about how we reach people, how we storytell, and ultimately, how we change the world. If you're enjoying the show, please do some storytelling for me. You can share about the Wardrobe Crisis podcast on social media, or just tell your friends at work, at school, or on the bus, wherever. Maybe you can even write a poem about it. That would be awesome. Okay, let's listen to the dulcet, lusciously laconic tones of my super cool mate, Wilson Oriema. Wilson, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Hello, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to do something unusual for the format of this in that I'm not going to ask you a question to begin with. I'm going to ask you to recite one of your poems for us. Sure. Do you have one in mind? I do. I wanted it to be Boxing Day Blues. Okay. It begins, Christmas Day is almost over. I've lost interest in most of my gifts. These ties and socks overly kitsch and my smile overly stiff. The DVDs I received I'd already bootlegged and watched for free a month ago in fact on my phone and smart TV which have run their course. It's been six months since both were bought. So off I go in my diesel drive cutting through the silence deep into the night to find myself in some items sold at a bargain price. And that's Fox and Day Blues. I sent you a little chunk from my book, Rise and Resist, that put into perspective the crazy behaviour that culturally we indulge in on Boxing Day. Yeah. What did you think of it? The bit I sent was a story about all of these people queuing up for Boxing Day sales in Sydney. And they'd gone before the shops opened, like at 7am or whatever, and been there for an hour or more. And then it was revealed that the sale wasn't on yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it hadn't even started. <laughs> but they kept queuing because there's something weirdly compulsive about we queue up, we wait, there could be bargains. And even when we find out that there are any bargains, we still do it just in case. It's just funny. When we observe other humans in activity outside of ourselves, we just realise how much we are in just like a massive almost ant farm or something. And it's just like we move in very predictable ways and how easy that is to manipulate as well. Consumerism is the driving force behind everything that makes everything we do unsustainable for our planet. I mean, we know this, but it's not something we like to question. No, because sometimes when the issues look too large, we just try to turn our heads because we always question, like, can we ever amount to solving this or doing this? And yeah, it's quite natural. We also take the easiest option. So particularly in the work that we both do around sustainable fashion, it's easier to sort of tinker around the edges than it is to question the whole system that underpins it. Yeah, it is. We just got you to recite your poem, but you also made a film to go with it. I watched it on the Nowness. There's a guy felling a whole forest of Christmas trees. There are kids nagging about presents. Yeah. The bit that I liked the best, though, was actually the wrapping paper and the sound of the wrapping paper wrapping up the present. 
Oh um, yeah, I thought that was really nice. Um, so the Boxing Day Blues film is essentially a visual rendition of the poem that I just recited where from it starts from the initial craze of preparing for Christmas. So the first sign of Christmas is the cutting of the trees, but it can also be the printing of the money as more people need to spend. And then going from that, it goes to the different phases to the buying of the gifts and the wrapping of the gifts. And that part I put in just because I really like the, what's that trend called, ASMR? It's just like this, there's this whole kind of uh, trend of people just like watching things for the sounds. Really? Yeah, so it's like people... Because the sound of the paper is so clear and that's what struck me. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> is no, that like exactly. an internet thing? Yeah. Oh my God, I'm showing my age. I've never heard of that. <laughs> what, so it, the sound is what transports you more than the visuals. Yeah, so there's like ASMRs of people doing uh, what's mukbangs, where it's just like they're eating a lot of food. And yeah, I think that transcended in, in South Korea and it's just kind of made it across. Now people do ASMRs for all different types of stuff, whether it's like cutting nails or eating food or like Oh my God, the mundane, skin. stop. Yeah. I just, I look for beauty and to be transported or challenged. I do not want to listen to someone chuck cutting their nails. But it's such a, sometimes it's such a, well, the food ones are, are the most popular by far because it's like, you're also watching someone eat something really messily. It could be spaghetti, it could be a lobster tail or whatever. But then you're also just hearing like the lips smacking and this and it just, it's a really intense thing. But aside from that... Um, but just going to say, we're going to share a link so you can watch it because actually I love that I asked you that and that that was the answer. Yeah. Because it causes a moment of stillness when you're watching the film and it made me zero in on the idea of the paper which obviously comes from trees and then you've started with chopping down the trees so to me it was quite a subtle way of making you think about how we turn nature into the man-made yeah there you go thank you <laughs> yeah i thought that was it was a great um thing to include and and it kind of was like a missing piece and the other i think that, yeah that was the last part that i added but also what you're doing is speaking to your generation and speaking to people who understand that thing you just said that I'd never heard of. Yeah. Which is really powerful when we talk about how we get this messaging into people's minds. Because I think my whole, kind of going back to the point that you raised about the mundane, my whole approach is to make a spectacle out of the mundane. So it's like the things that we would typically ignore, like why are there so many people lining outside or, or it's like, hey, I've just finished this bottle of whatever and I'm just going to throw it out on the street or with a cigarette, whatever. And it's, I just want to bring more attention to the different ways we consume. And I think for different audiences, you always have to try and challenge them in new ways because truth be told, there's information about everything most people will ever need to know. And you can find that by like maybe five to 10 seconds of a Google search, but most people will not look for it and for the most part they want to be entertained because life for the most part is pretty boring you go through your emotions and you do everything but then it's like maybe you're listening to music or watching a film or going to play a sport and and you try to keep yourself entertained to, to kind of counteract the boring moments but also the power of the visual is strong so we're going to talk about the power of words which is definitely where i come from yeah. but the power of visual images is obviously huge and I mean it's almost a stupid thing to say we know that I mean we live in such a digitized visual culture but by making a film that goes with your poem you're putting that image into people's heads and also targeting a different set of people 
as well because um, like I'm not sure but when I was in school they had these things where it's like they test if you're a kinesthetic auditory or visual learner and they may have found out but they never did anything with it but I think it's obvious that people learn in different ways and actually care in different ways so there's an importance in doing it in just words there's an importance in reading it out there's an importance in showing it visually or a mix of, of that and other things or allowing people to touch different things mm. so I thought that was it's important to try and appeal to different as many different mediums as possible I want to talk about the poetry and the words but first of all where does this can we say anti-consumerism or approach to consumerism come from in you I wouldn't say anti-consumerism because I because you're wearing a Burberry jacket <laughs> is that why <laughs> No, <laughs> I no, I just wouldn't. I feel like I've had this kind of label stuck on me and it's like we still need consumption as well on like a broader level to exist. Like despite the downfalls of what you may say about society, there is still needed a purchasing power, which is important in order to help us move certain things forward, whether that's in medical industry or, or within or food or or various other things there is still a need for consumption well until we smash capitalism that's the system we operate in yeah but at this point that is the de facto thing like of course we we can overconsume, and that's more of what i pay attention to but i do feel on some level that consumption is a necessity whether it's by bartering of trade or by using an, an agreed uh, shared value, whether that's money or like gold or Bitcoin or whatever. It's a good label though. If I was a journalist writing a story about you, the headline, and I'm going to read it out, yeah. <laughs> meet the anti-consumerist Margiello muse. I mean, yeah, exactly. it's a good headline. Yeah, it's a good headline and it, uh, it's tricky. But yeah, what, how would you then describe your approach to consumerism and why are you so interested in talking around the levels of consumption that we face? It's funny, when we were at Copenhagen, I had the title on my on my card just say, interested in human consumption. I understand um, for press reasons, you want something that's going to get people like, oh, this is the person that's really... You just want a hard-hitting headline to make someone sound like they're completely against something. And of course, that's never really always the case. We were naturally hypocrites, but... Um, Oh, well, you've also been called a walking contradiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that works as well. On a broader scale, I'm interested in this theme of consumption as we constantly consume, whether that's objects, whether that's food, whether that's other people, essentially, in terms of time and attention, whether that's narratives. And there's things that also consume us, whether that may be emotions or, or whatever. And I feel like none of these things exist in a vacuum. Like, the same reason why you're prone to buying if you're shown a certain type of advertising prompt maybe the same is definitely connected to why you may be more likely to eat a lot of food when you're really sad so I want to try and tie these different things in in terms of approaching this idea of consumption and that's kind of my art practice in a sense but in terms of practicality I think it's really I want to try and bring attention to issues of overconsumption or careless consumption like say careless consumption is a good phrase yeah so so that is so that also underpins a lot of my say work in fashion where it's trying to focus on like like you said like i'm doing these this documentary around chemicals in fashion and its effects on the human body it's it's like 
what are the results of this careless consumption? And it's like, what are the options that we have available to us or what are people doing so that there may be options available to us in the future? So I'm an advocate of consumption on some level, but it's also, we just need to be a lot more careful before we run over into a ditch. Let's talk about modeling. We mentioned Margiela. So can you tell us a story about how you got scouted? Were you at work? Yeah, so I was doing operations and product development at a apprenticeship company. I was on a lunch break and I was walking with a friend and then someone ran across, someone left their baby with their friend and then ran across the road and was like, hey, would you be interested in, in walking a Margiela show? She dumped her baby to chase you and tell you that you had to go to Paris. I, I say, <laughs> no, I can't even say her name because that sounds really bad. No, it doesn't. I'm only teasing. <laughs> she didn't. She left it with a friend. Yeah. So, but it's, I've become more normalised to that because casting people that I know now, if they see someone that they think... Got to will, get that person. Yeah, they will literally stop what they're doing and run. What was your reaction? I wasn't sure at all because if my friend wasn't there, I might have said no because... The idea of, hey, we, you might walk for this brand called Margiela in Paris. Did you ever like, heard of it? Yeah, I'd heard of Margiela. Margiela's quite obscure. I mean, in the scheme of things, everyone knows now because Galliano is the creative director. Do you know that story about the 80s Margiela? No. So in the 80s, and imagine that this is a time of great decadence in Paris, so you've got Saint Laurent and Chanel, and it's all very extravagant shows very, opulent, very yeah. opulent lots of money um lots of glamour and Margiela was a kind of enigmatic disruptor who was one of the first upcyclers before they used that language so okay. he made a blouse out of old socks I don't know if they were old anyway out of pairs of socks uh he turned gloves into a bustier he made a I think he made a gown out of a butcher's apron but essentially he was repurposing other mm. stuff and he also shows in a grotty car park or a grotty metro station when everyone else was showing in all the chandelier laden places yeah. so he was a amazing disruptor but if you think about brands that people relate to and everyone knows about Burberry whatever I don't think Margiela's there so we we like okay I know him fine <laughs> yeah so I only know him through in rap music it's a common trait to kind of just to show off about things that people don't have yet. So it's like, oh, I've got a suit from this brand or I stayed in this hotel that's that's on the other side of the world that you won't even be able to get a room for or this other type of oh, stuff. God. So so kind of growing up, you, you're kind of like, what's this name this person's talking about? So some, I think someone just mentioned like Marcella's shoes and I had that reference. How so, interesting. And now it's all Gucci. Now if you're a kid, Gucci's the thing. Because all music is about Gucci now. No, it does, I feel like there's, it's still... Gucci is popular, but then they had that brief moment where everyone's like, oh, they're going to cancel them. But no, I feel like it's it's spread across a few different brands, whether it's like the Off-Whites, the Louis Vuittons, the Balenciaga, the, the Raph Simmons, the Margiela's. The, it, it's kind of... It's different things come in vogue at different times, but it's so, so very quick. It's like, oh we love this this season or we don't love this the next season and it's just very much like who can keep chasing it is chasing the rabbit essentially it's also interesting because we always talk about the churn of product when we're looking at sustainability but you're talking about the churn of brands and ideas and allegiances people are very quick to switch and drop ideas because it's like oh this year I want to look like what like a a doctor from the year 3000 would look like (laughs) or and next year I want to look like a, a desert 
traveller from like the 1950s. Wilson, I love that you said that. So my whole fashion youth involved dressing in vintage stuff that would be character presenting. So I used to have this friend, Emily McGregor, Mm -hmm. and we spent our whole time guessing each other's inspirations. And it would be like, oh, 1982, second cellist with the New York Philharmonic. (laughs) And it was that specific. (laughs) But it was all vintage. Anyway, what were we saying? Okay, so I want to know this. What was it like when you got there to Paris? Yeah, I I was really worried. I thought I'd be getting kidnapped at some point when I got to Paris. Because you always hear about, unfortunately, you hear about kids all the time just disappearing. Do you know what? So I would refer listeners back to the episode we did with Baroness Lola Young about modern slavery, in which we're talking about the fashion industry and some of the obvious industries where slavery happens, like fishing. But then at the end of that interview, she tells a story about the work she's been doing with football, because kids... When you think about glamour, fashion and football. So they're literally enslaving kids off the street with the promise of, hey, you could be a football star or you could be a fashion model. It actually happens. Really? Mm. Okay. I don't know. I'd never known that either. It's really an interesting, awful, but I mean, it just shows there's depravity anywhere you look. But I think the lure of those glamorous industries if you're like a kid in a village in I don't know where. Yeah, and someone like it's even in the, say, football films where it's like, oh, they find a kid from like a poorer part of the world and then it's like, oh, someone's seen their football talent and they want you to be this What's person. It's the dream. Yeah, or you hear about the Naomi Campbells who were scouted in Croydon and then it's like, now she's the one of the biggest models ever and it's like, yeah, like you said, the allure is so strong. So what was it like when you got there? It was interesting. Got there, was waiting around a lot, just talking to people, trying to understand, is this regular waiting around, going back and forth between the hotel, just waiting to be called for either a fitting or just to walk for someone. There were people who they brought out on a train and then would just send back if they didn't like Brutal. Very brutal. And I was just like, wow, I'm shocked I haven't been sent back yet. And then met my roommate for a night, who was Frank Lebon, he's a really amazing photographer. And he introduced me, he brought me to dinner with some of his, him and his dad's friends. Uh, We had a great time, got back, did the show the next day, which was great. Uh, Met Harley there. Yeah, it was was a good time. What has, you've since worked for lots of big names, Calvin Klein, for example. I know that you're friends with Grace Wales Bonner. Mm. Amazing label, we'll share some details if you're not familiar with her. Absolutely disruptive, brilliant, brilliant brand. But what's this platform given to you? And do you even think of yourself as a model? Before we started recording, I asked you that. At this point, I feel like I'm semi-retired or retired from modeling. 25. (laughs) Because I enjoyed modeling when I started for the, like, you've got amazing photographers who pull you into their world and it's like you're creating these amazing images. But it just comes to a point where a lot of models do work that is just kind of regular photos or it's like e-com and stuff. I've never done any e-commerce, so it's never been, uh, hey, go to this place work from nine to five just kind of changing in and out of clothes and then you get paid i don't know like a few hundred a day for that or something yeah but also in it's got a slight problem when it comes to your work in anti-consumerism if you were just no even before even before so that it was it was just never something that i really wanted to do like i i kind of got into modeling as a hobby and i just thought oh this is really interesting or it's fun to kind of because I, I felt like I was a control freak before and I thought 
this was a really interesting space to kind of explore myself or, or give away control. So yeah, modeling kind of gave me a different perspective on the world in terms of the way that you can express yourself or explore things creatively, meeting different amazing people like photographers, set designers, makeup artists, and so on and so forth. Much more different to the world that I grew up in. So what did you want to do when you were a kid? I didn't know. You grew up in Brixton? Yeah, I grew up in Brixton, South London, born in Clapham, kind of stayed around the area. But, but your mum's from Uganda? Yeah, so my mum came over as an asylum seeker. But oh, did she? Yeah, so my grandfather was killed by a dictator in the country and a lot of his children, my mum and her brothers and sisters, had to leave the country for fear of their lives. In the 80s and late 70s, a lot of them left and then... My mum ended up in the U- after travelling a bit, she ended up in the UK in late 80s, early 90s. And then I was born here. Do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I have stepbrothers, but I was an only child growing up in my mum's house. Is your mum proud of you now? I hope so. I want to talk about um, your book of poetry, Wait. But first of all, you're friends with Harley Weir, right? Yeah. Did you intern with her? Or she's just your mate? Uh, it's, it's a funny story. So I've known Harley for about five years. So we met in Paris for that Margiela show. It's funny, I keep getting called the Margiela Muse and I did that maybe like five years ago. But, but that was uh, your first show. Yeah, exactly, that's true. So I met Harley there. She asked me to do a shoot. I actually had work on the same day coming back to London, but then I just called in sick. And then I went to the shoot, it was fun. Stayed in contact on a few more shoots over the years. And then I was at a point where I was, like I was also working a, a job on the side. And then there was, I was just at a point in that year 2016, where I was just trying to decide which way I should go, whether I should stick to the corporate route and just kind of try and focus on, on making a lot of money and ignoring everything, or should I really try and take risks at things that I care about? There's a great quote, which I saw yesterday on Twitter, which was, don't force yourself to do anything you hate. If you get too good at this, you won't be able to figure out when to quit. So at this point, even though I just heard it yesterday, I feel like it's something that I've tried to embody, maybe sometimes failing, but I just wanted to at least take a risk with things that I liked or cared about Mm -hmm. because I had a few failures in different projects I was trying to do. So then around September, 2016, I saw Harley post uh, hey, she's looking for a, for an intern. And then I was just <laughs> like... That could be me. I'll take that risk. Yeah, I was just like, I, let me see. She's my favourite photographer. And why not just see what it's like and maybe I can learn something and yeah. try the creative part. Love. Now, yeah. if listeners don't know about Harley Weir's work, we'll share some links. But she's an incredible photographer. She studied at St Martin's. She shoots for self-portrait and pop. But I think the pictures that many of you will remember are the campaign that she shot for Stella McCartney where all the models were in a landfill site. Do you remember that? We'll share some pictures, but, you know, beautiful autumn winter clothes and coats and classic Stella pieces on these cool girls. And then you look and it's like, oh, landfill site. There's one where she's lying in a load of plastic trash. That brings us to the kind of inspiration behind the work that then you went on to collaborate with Harley for the exhibition that you did, Wait, right? Yeah, so I'd taken photos of rubbish 
just because I I was on the way carrying stuff to the studio and then I saw an, an interesting... The mundane. Yeah, exactly, the mundane and it's like trying to find a pattern so that you can present it as an idea and then just started taking a lot of photos of it. And literally it's like a plastic cup with a straw in, crushed underfoot. Yeah, literally stuff like that and then did the show, Ridley Road. Oh, it's called Doom Gallery. Oh, it's in Dalston. Yeah, it's closed now, unfortunately. Um, but so you yeah. had a photographic exhibition and you called it Wait. Yeah, so it was a photo show and it had to, a short film. It was only two days, but it was that same weekend the unfortunate attacks on in London Bridge happened. Yeah. So a lot of people didn't get to make it in the end. And from there, I was like, oh, I'm going to communicate in a different way. So I thought a photo book, but then I did a poetry book. Who just does a poetry book? Now, Wilson, I read in an interview with you that you'd said that poetry as a form didn't used to speak to you because you thought of it being like classical and Shakespearean and something that you'd learn at school that didn't particularly float your boat. Yeah. How did you change your tune around that? Uh, so many cliches, floating boats, <laughs> changing tunes. Oh my God. If I was editing myself, I'd cross that out with a big red pen. But that's the beauty of it. So what, what, how did you then hit on your style of poetry and the way that you can use the written and spoken word to express what you're interested in, uh, totally outside of those traditional structures that make poetry seem stuffy to people? Uh, so that year, I got put onto a really interesting book called Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. And it's just a fictional tale of the relationship between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. And so... In the story of Marco Polo, he's an adventurer, and then he comes back to this member of, uh, he's like a king or something, Kublai Khan, and he's just telling him this story of different cities. And there was this one city of trash, which he told him about. And I had put that in the first version of the book that I had done, and it was just maybe a bit of the story and then an image. And then I kept doing that, but then thinking about it, I was like, I'm gonna have to pay for the copyright to use this if I want to sell this. So I just thought, why not do my own poems? And then I was listening to listening to a lot of just kind of music with like poetry in it, like say rap or whatever. And then I was like, oh, I can actually just do poetry. I was listening to a lot of music for reference. And then from there, I just kind of put my head down inside winging it. It's this language, but I think that word poet is so loaded. People think it means something. I don't know if it's Byron floating around in his... Poetry. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. But, you know, it's got very pretentious, potentially, but certainly high brow, like ivory tower connotations. I guess what I'm thinking is there's probably cool poets. There's certainly Leonard Cohen. That's my favourite. Okay. But um, still, poetry's a bit elitist. What, what, what? Don't tell me you hate Leonard. I'll mm. kick you out. I... I... <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually haven't read that much poetry. Like, I, I haven't read that much poetry. Well, Leonard Cohen is a folk singer, a big 60s iconic creature who died a few years ago, and he also was a poet. Okay. I'm going to buy you a book of Leonard Cohen poetry. Oh, it's thank amazing. Thank you very much. Oh, wait, I will say, as well as the, the music, I the two books, no, so I read three books which really made me comfortable with the idea of doing poetry, which was... I read two of uh, Nayira Wahid's poetry books, one called Salt. The other one was the book by Rupi Kaur, Something and Her Flowers. Yeah. It's interesting that you just mentioned Nayira Wahid. Um, I had never heard of her, but when I was just doing some research around what inspired you, I found her work fascinating. 
it's about brevity and she also shares a lot of it on Instagram and she's someone who you never can find a picture of because she wants her work to be enigmatic. Yeah. But I wrote this down because I thought it's so lovely. A reviewer had said she creates entire universes in very small spaces and leaves you breathless while doing it. Yeah, she's incredible. That's a lovely idea. Yeah. But talk to me about that kind of... I think it is brevity. So when I was talking about the kind of classic pretension of the Byronic poet, <laughs> it's all really flowery. There are really stringent rules about how the pentameter is. that what you call it? I forget. I did study this at school. But you know I the knew. rhythm, how that works. And it's almost like it used to be that you couldn't break those rules. Yeah. But when you talk about her or you talk about your work, it's like you've completely disrupted the format and the purpose of it, right? Because you're trying to speak to everyone, not just... yeah someone bookish <laughs> you're using social media as well to talk about it no exactly i feel like you can't be picky about the form at all and i feel like it hinders more than helps like is it more that you want the message to get out or are you more about the perception that people have of you that's why i'm trying to break form or try to to create ways that i haven't seen of communicating you read us another one yeah sure can you read us chasing the rabbit I'd love to. Um, this is the first poem in the book, Wait. I think it was maybe the second or third poem that I actually wrote. One more release, one more colorway. Everyone said it was must have. So, of course, I bought a pair. My next post should make them salivate, maybe for a day or two, until someone remakes the same old shoe, but this time in blue. So, of course, I will be ready to upload that too. Yuck. (laughs) (laughs) We've um, depended on social validation because we we are social beings. Instagram just kind of zeroes in on that that kind of desire. Is it worse for your generation? So you're 25. Yeah. I don't know how many kids you talk to, but do you think for teenagers the pressure is way worse? Or is that just a perception that old people like me like to put on Gen Z? <laughs> I feel like it's different shorts for different folks, of course. Like, say, with teenagers, it may be certain clothes or, say, for a different group of adults, it may be the jewellery you have or what type of food you make or where you went on holiday or... Because well, we all do it with the avocado on toast, <laughs> even if we're not doing it with the sneakers. <laughs> Wait, do people show up about that? This is like, uh, I don't know if this is an Australian thing. Australians eat a lot of avocado. But it's sort of a middle-class preoccupation with taking pictures of your breakfast. A lot of people, it just builds up and builds up and turns into, like, depression or or you try and find escapism through other means. Maybe that may be hiding away at home or, or, like, immersing yourself in some other form of consumption or addiction. But it isn't healthy. And I feel like it's also why Instagram's taken, trying to take away the likes as well. Because oh, yeah, because so... they just tried it in Canada. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, And I think they're getting a good response. I want to finish up by asking you what kind of future you would like to see and perhaps we can just talk about that need to make change. I think we both work in that space in different ways. Yeah, for me, most immediately... What I'd like to see in fashion is, I think fashion is one of the only industries that exists outside or as far away as possible from the normal world, essentially. It's not like pretty much every other industry in existence is apart from 
art and fashion are, are quite heavily regulated or quite heavily involved with government and also involved with each other. I feel like there's across many industries you'll mm. see some kind of like there are government agencies which are well set up and well established and well involved. Even on the UN side, there's a lot of committees that are well involved. And I feel like fashion's relationship with the rest of the industries isn't as strong as it could be or as it should be. And I feel that there needs to be much more stronger links and efforts being put forward so that we can it can be made much easier to hold people accountable for their actions. I'm not that gloomy and I don't think people should be. I feel like there, there is this massive uh, thing where people are being scared or pushed into panic. And when it's like, that's more defeating than it is helping because I've never resolved an, any issue in my life in a state of panic. I've never seen anyone resolve any issue in a state of fear or panic or just being like out of control. So. But for me personally, it will be also creating a lot more content around the different issues affecting our planet and how our consumption is affecting that or causing that and, and what we can do. I'm trying to do more work within fashion and, and trying to get into more of our industries and, and try to encourage change in these spaces. It will be so nice if you could sign out from this podcast by reading us two of your favourite lines, perhaps some inspiring lines from another poem. This is from a poem titled An Example of What We Shouldn't Do and it was about this rush to constant or to just buy things just based on it's being sold at a cheap price or it's a discount or a bargain and it ends with the two lines Maybe I should go with quality in mind and not buy cheap in case I later change my mind and that's it Love it Thank you Thank you It's a pleasure it's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, Because I love you, because I love you.